Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of being with someone who perhaps has a terminal illness but doesn't want to talk about it. I've had that experience a couple of times. Sometimes within hours of someone passing away and you know the weight of eternity hangs in the balance. You know so many things are so weighty. And yet they spend their final moments, their final hours, talking about the trivial. You can imagine a person maybe with cancer and not wanting to acknowledge that the cancer is there. Maybe a very treatable form of cancer and how tragic it would be if they had that cancer and yet they didn't want to acknowledge that it was there. And their doctor would tell them it is survivable. There's a promise of life on one condition that we do immediate and invasive surgery, but there's a great chance of survival if you'll accept that. And they just don't want to accept it. They might, they might say, I'm in pain, and they might acknowledge that they need medication, and they might maybe go so far as to say those things, but they would never want to admit that they have this dangerous illness. Well, in some sense, that's kind of what Paul's describing for us in the unbelieving mind in Romans chapter 1. A dangerous and deadly ailment, if you will, that ought to be obvious to them, and yet what they do is deny it. They deny the realities of it. And this is really what he's laying out for us in Romans chapter 1, and he's laying out to us the rebellion the darkness of the human heart, and ultimately God's response to it in the sense of His wrath. Remember, Paul stated it really there in this first uh, verse of this section, verse 18, when he talks about how the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, he says, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And because of this basic rebellion, because of this suppression, Paul says God is revealing, God is enacting, God is working out His wrath. It is taking place around us and of course it will take place in the end. So this is a passage about the wrath of God, but really the wrath of God in response to the darkness of this human mind. And so Paul is unfolding it, first of all, talking to us about the revelation of this wrath there in the first verse. How, remember we said this is a present tense verb, it is being revealed, it is an ongoing thing around us. It's evident already, it will be certainly on display in the end, but you can already see it in the unraveling of people's lives, in the moral degradation of even society around us. And the reason for all this, Paul begins to spell out there in verses 19 and 20, really moving on beyond that, really going down to verse 23, as Paul unfolds for us the fact that this this knowledge about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. 
And so we saw last week how there is a knowledge about God that they suppress, a knowledge about God that is plain to them. But we have more work to do in really understanding the unbelieving mind, because after understanding how man thinks wrongly about God, Paul then begins to unfold how that leads him to think wrongly about what he sees. To think wrongly, in other words, about the created order as well as the creator. And he really sort of unfolds this at a deeper level in verse 21. He sort of restates the premise, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. So he expands on the greatness of their sin. It's not just a denial of the truth. It's a denial of God, it's a denial of His existence, it's a denial of His supremacy, and it's a denial of His uh, role, if you will, as the creator of all things. You understand what Paul's saying here? He's not saying that every person has the capacity to know God. He's saying every person knows God. Every person. They actually know Him. They sense His existence. On one hand, they sort of have this innate knowledge that they are a derived creature. They are derived being. But on the other hand, they suppress it. So as we said last week, man is in this position of being both a possessor and a suppressor of the knowledge of God. An unbelieving mind knows God's existence and God's place as creator. But at the same time, he doesn't want to acknowledge it because he wants to be his own authority. Man wants to be his own authority. He unrighteously hates the role of God. It's really, I was thinking this way, it's like the paradigm of Satan. Satan knows God. I mean, he's had millennia of experience with God. He knows God, he has seen God personally, and and he has been in his presence. He knows God is supreme. He knows God will not be thwarted. He has seen God's plan of salvation unfold. He knows about the resurrection. He knows about Christ. He knows about all those things. He knows that in the end, God will win. He knows that. And yet, what does he do? Instead of just acknowledging that, and instead of just sort of conceding that and falling down and and worshiping God, what does he do? He continually lies to himself. Although he knows God, he continually tries to overthrow God in the role that he knows God has. And you look at that and you think, that's absolutely ridiculous. Why in the world would Satan, who knows God, continually try to overthrow God? But you understand, that's what Paul's saying every person does. They know God. And yet they want to overthrow him. The believer, excuse me, the unbeliever then exists in this kind of paradox. He's created in God's image. And yet he does everything he can to intellectually, ethically deny that. He's like a person who's constantly throwing a glass of water on a raging fire. But he can never put it out. 
He's just, he's like the person who's giving you sophisticated arguments about why air doesn't exist while in order to make those arguments, he's breathing the very air he's denying. This is the, this is the paradox of the unbeliever. He assumes that self-consciousness is intelligible without God consciousness. And that's his fundamental mistake. He assumes a consciousness of morality is intelligible without God's consciousness. He assumes a, a, even a consciousness of reason is intelligible without a God consciousness. He assumes all that. And so in the end, although he knows God, he doesn't honor God and he doesn't give thanks for all that he sees as coming from God. He's like the, the scientist in the laboratory who acts like all the things that he's working on or looking at do not belong to God. I mean, you can imagine if a thief came into your house and just sort of perused all your things and you sort of confront them about what they're doing and how wrong they is. And he says, you know what? Who this stuff belongs to is irrelevant. I'm just here examining it. They're going to take what I want and use it the way I want. That's ridiculous. But this is what man does. He doesn't ever want to think about it. He doesn't want to ever acknowledge what belongs to who. And so instead of seeing himself as a steward of creation, he takes the honor that ought to be given to the creator and he transfers it, Paul says, to the created order. refuses to take his position as the creature. He refuses to take his position as the steward. And so because of all that, at the very foundational level, at the very beginning of understanding, when he examines atoms and when he examines solar systems, when he examines every visible created thing, he begins with the wrong premise. When he begins to even understand life, when he begins to understand relationships, he begins with the wrong premise. Because he doesn't understand God's hand in creating all those things. He doesn't give thanks for all those things. And so in his rebellion and in his refusal to see the plain evidence of God around him, it leads him to misinterpret not just God, not just the creator, but to misinterpret the created order. And this is really what Paul's unfolding for us here at the end of verse 21 and on into verse 23. Two sort of descriptions about this when he talks about man having a futile mind and really a faulty interpretation. He has a futile mind and a faulty interpretation. He says there at the end of verse 21, they did not honor God as God or give him thanks, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's the state of mankind in rebellion against God. That's the description of their, uh, their mind in denial of God's existence. It is futile in its thinking. Dialogismois is the word. Their logic, their reasoning is futile. It's not saying that man's not intelligent. He's not saying that man is not 
creative. He's not saying he's not inventive or ingenious or resourceful or inquisitive. Paul's not denying, if you will, what we might refer to as the IQ. But he's saying that all of that stuff, that creativity, that inquisitiveness, that creativeness, that rationality, all of that stuff is futile. Because it's built on a faulty foundation. See, to even reason properly about the things around you, you must begin with God. You have to. The world doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense without that. Without those uh, realizations of God's existence and God's power and God's supremacy. It cannot make sense. And yet this is what man does. He always begins without God. He begins, in other words, we'll say it this way, with himself as the ultimate reference point. He begins with himself as the ultimate reference point. He may seem profound in his reasoning. He may even acknowledge many things that we know to be true. He concedes even sometimes so many of the things that Christianity concedes so that even sometimes believers are drawn underneath some of the philosophies of men Some of the other religions of the world say many of the same things that Christianity says and philosophies throughout time have affirmed the same things that Christianity says. But it all, it all ends in futility. Even if they begin to make these truthful statements, man may admit that he's in need of more knowledge. He may admit that he has some moral corruption. All those things that that, that are identified with with essentially the scripture but at the end of the day in spite of all those true observations these systems fail to make ultimate sense out of the world because ultimately all of them have been built on the wrong foundation taking man as the ultimate reference point man looks at himself as the ultimate reference point for all knowledge For all the experience that comes his way, his or her judgment is looked at as ultimate. Your reasoning, your analysis, your observation, your wisdom, that is ultimately what you lean on. And yet, when you're that way, when you yourself are the ultimate judge of what is right and what is wrong, of what is true and what is false. You're building on a wrong foundation. You are suppressing what God has innately revealed to you as the ultimate. Because you are a limited, a finite creature. You understand that? You cannot see all of the universe. You cannot experience all time and so any decision any analysis you make is by its very nature limited but you know who's not limited you know who is infinite you know who has seen all of time 
and knows all of creation, it's God. And the only way for you to ever make a proper judgment about anything is to see through his eyes and to think through his mind. You're not the ultimate reference point. Your judgments about what's right and wrong are not the ultimate. Your analysis, your observation, your experience, your whatever it might be, that is not the foundation. And to the extent that you believe that, to the extent that you think that, you are building on an ultimate Ultimately, a faulty foundation. And yet, this is what man wants to do. They even want to claim a right to examine Christianity. They want to examine Christianity as a sort of a third-party person looking and examining. They believe the facts, the sort of a virtuous, you know, just sort of taking in all the data, all the information. And they're going to stand back and they're going to weigh things in balance and they're going to make their decision. But they're still the ultimate reference. And with themselves as the ultimate reference, there is no ultimate place to understand everything around them. Because if you begin with mankind, mankind can't make sense at the end of the day about life, about his own mind, about his own emotions, about his own morality without God. Can't do it. There is none. You have to at some point cut off the foundation. Create some sort of. Some sort of. uh, Either half thought through philosophy. Some sort of ignorant way of going through life. Some sort of floating from experience to experience without ever. Thinking deeply about your existence and your eternity. Or you just believe lies. Paul says in this state, their foolish hearts are darkened. That word heart, you understand, is a biblical term that refers not just to your intellectual, not just to your volitional kind of choices, but it's much beyond that. It's anything that goes on in your brain, including your motives and your emotions. The Bible speaks about a heart thinking, but also a heart rejoicing. It talks about a heart, you know, reasoning, but also a heart grieving. And so when you talk about the heart, when Paul says that the heart is darkened, he's saying the whole person, every level of you is tainted by this fundamental faulty foundation so that not only can you not reason properly without God, you can't process emotion without God. You can't process motivation properly without God. All of that stuff somewhere at its core level becomes confused. Rational thinking, emotional processing, critical reflection. It's all, at the end of the day, darkened. It's all corrupted. This is, by the way, what theologians call the noetic effect of sin. It's not a reference to Noah. It's a reference to the Greek word nous, which is the word for mind in Greek. And this is what the theologian talks about, how the mind at every level, in every capacity, is tainted. There is no part of it which is pure. There's no pure motivation. There's no pure 
emotion. There's no pure reason. There's no pure rationality. There is none. It's all tainted by the fall into sin. As Paul says, it's darkened here. This is what defines the human condition. This is what defines human emotion, the reasoning processes, the emotional processes of the unbelieving mind. It is darkness within. Paul's not saying that it's suffering from darkness on the outside. He's not even suggesting that it's a lack of information on the outside. He says the darkness is inside of you. Your problem is not that you don't have the right information on the outside. Your problem is you don't like the information on the outside and you suppress it. So this darkness is all within. Or as Ephesians 4.18 says, that the unbeliever is darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their hearts. So it's darkened, it's filled with ignorance, even if it's very sophisticated and intellectual, Because it has hardened its heart against God. So the whole thinking process is corrupted. And the implications are profound. When a person determines to think his own way, to utterly reject the fundamental foundation of creation, you reject the fundamental foundation of the created order. And as Paul says, you're no longer thankful. You don't look at the things that are made with the first default reaction to be thankful. Because you're not even convinced that it came from anyone. And so you cut yourself off from that very foundation of understanding the created order and the world around you because you've cut yourself off from understanding the Creator. You know, even the Old Testament said this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1.7. See, it's not the end. Fear of the Lord is not the result. Fear of the Lord is not something you pick up along the way. Religious knowledge is not something you sort of set aside until a future date whenever you sort of get your career in order and you get your family in order and you buy all your stuff and then somewhere along the way you sort of add the fear of the Lord. That's not the way it works. He says the fear of the Lord, that is the foundation. So that you cannot reason properly, you cannot think properly, you cannot judge properly, you can't do all that stuff properly if you aren't thinking properly from the foundation. In other words, you are created to be a dependent creature. You were never created to be independent. God never made you to be independent. He never made you to think independently, to reason independently, to work through your emotions independently, or to to even work through your motives independently. God created you to be a dependent creature. And when you try to be independent, you suffer. You suffer from this faulty foundation. You are, another way to say this, you're created even in your logic and in your reasoning, your thinking, your emotions. All of that stuff was always intended to be borrowed from God. See, he created not only the chair that you're sitting in and the clothes that are on your back and the food that you're going to eat today. God created relationships. 
God created joy. God created contentment. God created all that stuff. You know, God created logic. God, in His essence, is not illogical. God is, one way you can think about God is He is pure consistency. God is not chaotic. He is pure consistency, pure reason, pure logic. And so anything that is logical, that is reasonable, is borrowed from God. And it reflects God. And if it doesn't reflect God, then it's not logical. Jeremiah explains this, or or he says in his own day, he says, Behold, they've rejected the word of the Lord, and so what kind of wisdom do they have? Implication, you can't have. There is no wisdom that exists apart from God. It's not like you have religious wisdom and you got sort sort of independent secular wisdom. It's not like you have independent knowledge. God has his knowledge and it's all about religious and spiritual things. And then you've got sort of the two plus two equals four knowledge. It's out here and it's independent of God as if it existed apart from God. As if there's anything in the universe that existed apart from God. In fact, when you reject God, you set yourself on a pathway, a spiraling pathway towards more and more irrationality, more and more chaos. Jude even says that those who reject the knowledge of God in Jude Jude 10, he says they become like beasts of the field, irrational animals, no longer created in the image of God. Proverbs 28, 26, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Proverbs 1, verse 29, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would not accept my counsel, they spurned all my reproof, so they will eat the fruit of their own way. You reject God, you reject His existence, you reject that as the foundation of everything that you know, you Set yourself down a pathway of futility and you will eat the fruits of it. That's what Paul's saying here. He's talking about the futility and the darkness of the mind. How can we quench our thirst when our well is dry? And you're not the source of the water. Go to Luke chapter 11 because I always love this passage jesus tells it in in such vivid terminology it's it's so compelling he's talking about people's response or really their lack of response to his teaching and he uses this little image in luke 11 34 he says your eye is the lamp of your body and when your eye is healthy your whole body is full of light In other words, when you have a good eye and you're processing light and those optical nerves communicate that to your brain, it affects everything. Everything is benefited by that ability. It isn't like half of your body is dark and half of your body is light. When you see the light, the light touches every part of your being in that sense. But it becomes very obvious that he's not talking Just simply, we would say, anatomically. 
He's talking ethically here because he contrasts this healthy eye to what? A bad, or some versions say an evil. When it's bad, morally bad, your body is full of darkness. Now, he's using the eye here as an image for the mind. And he's saying when your mind sees light, when it processes light, it affects every part of your being. But when it doesn't, the whole body, or we would say the whole mind, every part of the mind, every corner, every crevice of the mind is darkened. If you have a bad, an unhealthy eye, there's no way for light to get in. This is his explanation of the unbelieving mind. And then he makes this sort of profound, if you will, uh, a warning. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you is darkness. Well, how tragic. How tragic. If you would go through life thinking that you are enlightened, thinking that you are intellectual, thinking that you are wise, thinking that you have light, only at the end to find out that all the light that you thought was light is really just darkness. That's what he's saying. Be careful lest the light in you is actually darkness. All this processing, all this thinking, all this foundation, all this emotion, all this, you know, uh, volition, all of this motivation that you thought was good and right and pure all the way along, it's all wrong. Because you just didn't understand what the light was. David says in Psalm 36, For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. There's no other way to see it. There's no other way to see light. There's no other way to see creation. There's no other way to really see the world. Unless you see it through God's eyes. There's no other way to think about life rightly. Unless you think about it through God's mind. This is why 1 Corinthians 2 says we have the mind of Christ. And he's talking about the word there. He's talking about, as he says back in verse 10, what was revealed to us in the written word, which he summarizes the written word as the mind of Christ. And so we have the ability to see light because we see it through Christ's light. We have the ability to see the world because we see it through God's eyes. And we understand that we, we are not the ultimate reference point. We are not the ultimate ones who make the judgment about what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, what is wise and what is foolish. We're not the ones. We're not equipped. We weren't made to do that. And all those who want to do it apart from God... They become foolish. This is what Paul says there in Romans chapter 1, verse 22, that mankind claiming to be wise, they became fools. 
by claiming themselves as the ultimate point of reason, by establishing themselves as the ultimate point of wisdom, the ultimate point of reference for judgment and truth, what really happens is that mankind becomes foolish. They begin to draw foolish conclusions about life, about science, about morality, about themselves, about relationships, about their emotions. When they are the ultimate reference, when they set up their wisdom as the ultimate reference point, they become fools. And really, this establishes Paul's second description of the unbelieving mind. It's not only this sort of uh, this, this uh, futile thinking, but it's the whole faulty interpretation. That's what he gets at. It. He says, they became fools, verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. And not just man, birds and animals and creeping things. So without ultimate reference in God, mankind trying to make sense out of this life doesn't honor God, doesn't give God thanks. Instead, he takes what, what he owes to God in terms of honor and glory and he gives it to the created order. He gives it to the created order. Rather than seeing all the stuff Around him as coming from God. He turns around. And he worships the stuff. By the way Paul's not naive when he says this. He's not suggesting that every single unbeliever. Therefore becomes a brute idolater. And falls down before a a chunk of wood. Or a statue of metal. Or worships a tree or the sun or the moon. He's not suggesting that Paul would have understood even in the history of his own people Israel that sometimes this exchange took place within the context of non-idolatrous religion even in the history of Israel in times when they were outwardly worshiping uh, at least uh, according to the mode that God uh, 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 prescribed that still they would put their trust in the created things As the psalmist says in Psalm 146, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there's no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day, his plans perish. Or as Isaiah says in Isaiah 2, don't put your trust in the, 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 the breath of man that is in his nostrils. It's just exhaled in a moment. And over and over again, you have this call not to give the kind of honor and the kind of trust and the kind of glory to your material things, to those things that uh, those things that are around you. Don't give all of your honor and glory to that. Give it to God. Be thankful to him as the giver of it. Paul understood even in his own day that there were people who were developing sophisticated systems to, in an effort to make sense out of life. The Roman Empire had united the world with a system of roads. The Greek uh, uh, culture had united the world with a single language. And so there was arising, even in Paul's day, this idea that they ought to be all united with a common philosophy and a common religion. And as people traveled across the world, even intelligent pagans 
began to realize that there was a lot of similarities between all the various cults and religions that that spanned from east to west. And so there was an attempt to amalgamate all of those things into one sort of uh, uh, syncretistic melting pot. One writer says paganism basically deified parts of or forces in the natural order. It was not an odd step either for some, such as the Stoics then, to see all all parts coming together and producing pantheism, in which God is everything because everything is God. One of Stoicism's major competitors, the philosophy of Epicurus, moved in a different direction. God exists But they live in a life of blessedness removed from the world inhabited by humans. Epicureanism at a theological level thus offers a kind of proto-deism. In some of the ancient religious tendencies, there was an affirmation of the goodness of nature. But others like Zoroastrianism emphatically denied it. Like mystery religions, it promised an escape from the ordinariness of the present world and an initiation into a higher state of being. And then you had along with that... You had the sophists from the 5th century B.C. who were essentially skeptics about God and about everything. And Paul would have understood that all around him they were developing these illegitimate attempts to, to define and to explain the world around them. And he would have understood even the Romans themselves were in the middle of this kind of of melting pot of ideas. The problem isn't just that people bow down to idols. It's the fact that they give to created things. Or they give, let's say it this way, to derived things. The honor that belongs only to God. Whether it's putting their trust in an idol or a philosophy or a secular scientific interpretation. Mankind is always giving glory to the created order rather than the creator. But you know what the scripture says? All the while, he knows God exists. That's the sad thing. He knows it. But he suppresses it. He has a sense that he's a derived creature. But he doesn't want to give honor to God. He wants to be the authority. And Paul says because of all this. Because of this rebellion. Because of this stubbornness. Because of this darkness. Because of this futility. God. As he says in verse 24. Revealing his wrath, God gives them up. He gives them over. He says it in verse 24, God gave them up to the lust of their heart. He says it in verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. He says it in verse 28, seeing that they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. The sad thing is you want to rebel against God, you want to construct a world without him, He will reveal His wrath by letting you do it. And as you drift further and further away from Him, your world makes less and less sense. 
The chaos ensues. The confusion in your intellect, the confusion in your emotions, the confusion in your motivations. You're lost. You're lost. You know the good news, though? Is that although we are all born that way, God offers hope. As Colossians 3.10 says, He sent Christ to restore us to true knowledge. The knowledge, Colossians 3.10 says, that is according to the image of the one who created us. You see, what happens when you receive Christ is light shines in your heart. And all the darkness and the confusion about your life and about your emotions, about your purposes, about your motivation, all that sort of chaos that has been taking place, the judgment and the wrath of God in your life, all that stuff is dispelled as light, which at one point was blocked out because of the darkness of your heart, shines now into every part of you. And you become a new creature in Christ. And you're restored. You're restored to true knowledge. Knowledge according to the one who created you. That's our challenge for you today. Don't go on like this. You need radical treatment. Or you'll die. Or you'll be under the wrath of God. But if you take it. If you receive what God offers. You'll live. You'll live in this life. You'll be out from under the wrath of God. You'll live for eternity. And our prayer is that you would respond to that today. Our prayer is that you believe. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for your grace in our life. We're thankful for the light so that we can see. We were those running, suppressing, denying. But Lord, how grateful we are that you brought us to the truth and a truth that has made so much sense out of our life. We are created and you are our creator. We are dependent and you are the giver. And we are so grateful. We bless you. In Christ's name, amen.